Our passage this morning is a continuation of our series in Mark. I'm going to be preaching out of uh, Mark 12. Um, the official passage begins at verse 13 and runs all the way through verse 34. It's a really big chunk. Let me pray before we jump in. Father God, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, you have no rival, no equal. Now and forever you reign, and your name is above every name. Nothing. Nothing can stand against the name of Jesus. Father, thank you for the gift of your suffering servant, Savior, Jesus, to us, our Messiah King. May his name be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> and they sent him, they sent to him, they being the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, who have already confronted Jesus one time, made up of chief priests, scribes, elders, um, which include Pharisees and Sadducees. So this group um, is now sending to Jesus another group of Jewish leaders to confront him. As they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk, and they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and, look, and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, a woman also died in the resurrection. When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. 
For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Hear the word of the Lord. Are you familiar with the TV show Undercover Boss? I think it's been around a while. It's a reality show where a company leader goes undercover in their own company as a low-level employee to learn about how their company is working or not working, <laughs> to see how the company actually runs on the street level. In one episode, a national chain restaurant CEO sent his CBO, his chief brand officer, and we'll call her Sally. She's not Sally, by the way. He sent his chief brand officer on a mission into a branch store location to investigate the restaurant. She went in as a waitress under a particular shift manager. We'll call him Hank. While there, she discovered that Hank was openly opinionated about the restaurant's customers. Video footage shows him calling them selfish and demanding. In one exchange with Sally, Hank was heard to say this, quote, I literally hate customers more than anything in the entire world. I hate them so much. They're terrible. It's all about them all the time, and they demand everything. Hank added, Children and old people are literally the worst I've ever seen in my entire life. Can't make this up. This comes out of the heart of man. Well, needless to say, unbeknownst to him, Sally, the chief brand officer, was struggling to stay in character. The program shows her becoming livid with Hank, at times having to excuse herself from the kitchen so she can control herself and stay in character. In a later interview, Sally described her situation like this. My job's on the line. Here I am, a representative of this brand, and this is what happens. It can't happen on my watch, she is seen saying. I can't have someone who just told me that they hate customers more than anything in the world serving our guests. That's the complete antithesis of what we stand for. Deciding to tell Hank the truth 
of her identity, she then scolded him before telling the branch manager as well and advises that Hank be fired, which he was, and he lost his job. So how did Hank react to this bad news? Interestingly, Hank remained unrepentant after the fact, saying, I quote, I would tell them that my attitude would change, but I didn't think it was that terrible. It's not wrong of me to hate people. <laughs> this scenario shows us how extremely difficult it is to reform a person who is living in complete denial that they themselves have a problem. A person's unwillingness to see or own their own to see or own their own shortcomings, no matter how obvious they are to others, will lead too quickly to narcissism, a damaged life, and a wake of hurt. Stunning. Stunning is our capacity to live in denial of truth, to create our own personal false reality where what is wrong is actually considered right. In today's passage in Mark 12, we see the ultimate undercover boss, Jesus Christ, in his father's house, confronting the Jewish leadership that are responsible for the workings and worship of the temple. And what Jesus encounters, not unlike Hank, are Jewish leaders living in willful denial about the truth of God. They've exchanged the truth of God for the trappings and lies of the enemy, and in doing so have completely lost their way and their minds. The shepherding responsibilities over Israel that have been given to them are now totally about self-consumption and self-absorption. Life is all about them. Their thinking is so darkened and confused that what is right is wrong and what is wrong is right and without God, they are without hope. But God has come, hasn't he? In the flesh, the Son of God has come. The Messiah has come. And in this series of passages, he confronts these Jewish leaders. He even warns them of the truth and reality of God's word and the truth of a coming judgment, while also compassionately continuing to put himself out there as their potential savior from their narcissistic self-absorption. So today, we're going to see in Mark 12 where Jesus confronts these Jewish leaders in the temple, and we're going to see three dangerous denials that the Jewish leaders have fallen into. I'm just going to read all three of them. And then I'm going to sum them up kind of in one statement. But I think you'll get it. Here are the three denials. Denying Jesus his true identity. Denying Jesus his true authority. And denying Jesus his true power. And if I had to sum them all up together, I would say denying the truth of Jesus, period. That's what we see 
coming out of the Jewish leaders. So let me give you some context for these confrontations. Jesus, God's son and promised Messiah has come and he's come to Jerusalem to die. He knows this. It's the plan. It's the loving plan because he's come to be the perfect sacrifice, to die on a Roman cross, to redeem those God's given him to save, that through his shed blood, sinners would be forgiven of their sin and Christ's perfect life lived, his righteousness would be credited to their lives if they put their trust in him as their Lord and as their savior. He knows he's gonna die at the hands of the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. He knows also that he's gonna rise again. And he's actually, by this time, warned his own disciples three times about these specific events. Well, here's what's interesting. Even at this point in the story, his own disciples, his own followers, are living in their own form of denial because they can't get their head around the fact that the Messiah is going to Jerusalem to die at the hands of the Jewish leaders. They can't even begin to get that. They too are living in a form of denial. So here's where we are contextually. He passes, he comes into Jerusalem. It's the Passover week, and this is the last week of his earthly life. After coming into the city on a Sunday, honored as the king riding on a donkey to fulfill prophecy of the Messiah, he comes into the city on Sunday. He returns on Monday and immediately enters his father's house and exerts the rightful authority he has as the father's son on the temple. What does he do? He halts all the ungodly business going on in there. He stops the money changing. He stops the selling of animals. He literally stops the work of the temple. One man. And he knows that this action will bring sharp opposition from the Jewish leadership. He, in fact, incites, if you will, their ire. Why? Because he knows that it is time. It is finally the time, the exact right time for the Savior to come and die. And he knew that was coming on Friday. So in Mark 11 and 12, this is Tuesday. Right? So he cleans out the temple on Monday, and on Tuesday he returns. He's staying in Bethpage. He comes back each morning. He comes into Jerusalem on Tuesday, enters the temple, and there is a group of Jewish leaders already prepared to meet him. And they consist of different members of the Sanhedrin. And they confront him about his authority. Where do you get this authority? Who's given you this authority? And what's interesting is he, in this confrontation, and then the following two, the next confrontation is with Pharisees and Herodians, and the next confrontation is with Sadducees. In each of these three confrontations, Jesus is asked a tricky, deceitful question by the Jewish leaders. Why? Because they have one goal. What is that? They want to kill Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. They want to kill him. 
Why? Because he's claiming to be the Messiah and they don't believe he is? It's kind of what I thought for a really long time. This guy's committing blasphemy. He's just a man. Kill him. He's the Messiah. But in the context of chapter 12, we see something significantly different. Jesus never answers directly any of these confrontational questions. You know what he does? He doesn't answer their questions. He answers their need by responding in a way that focuses on their sin, focuses in on their denial. And so with the Sanhedrin, he focuses in on the fact that they're denying him his eternal identity. With the Pharisees and Herodians, they're denying his ultimate authority over every aspect of their lives. And with the Sadducees, they're denying his power and the power of his word. So in each of these groups, what do we have? We have the complete denial of Jesus. The denial of his identity. You're not who you say you are. The denial of his authority over all things. And the denial of his word, that his word is powerful. So we have the denial of Jesus represented in the full body of the Jewish leadership. Now, why do they want him dead? Now I have to take you back to a parable in the beginning of 12 that wasn't in my text. And it really is fundamental to understand this parable, to understand the confrontation. So let me give you a quick summary. A man with property plants a vineyard complete with a wine press tower and fence. He sublets his vineyards out to tenant farmers who are hired to tend the vineyard and harvest the fruit. In return for gainful employment and a fair share of the fruit, the tenant farmers are responsible to give the owner a just portion of the fruit at harvest. The owner sends a servant to collect and gather that fruit. And what do the tenant farmers do? They harass him and reject him and send him off empty-handed. So what does the owner do? He sends another servant. This servant, they bash his head in. That's the Greek, literally. They bash his head in and send him away empty-handed. So what does the owner do? He sends a third servant. And this servant, they kill. This happens many times over after that. Some servants they beat, some they killed. Until the owner had one other, his beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But the wicked tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. Let me repeat that. In the parable, this is what the wicked tenant servants say. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Jesus, upon telling this parable, immediately asks a question, which he immediately answers. And it's this. What will the owner of the vineyard do? What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants. He will destroy the wicked farmers and give the vineyard to others. Then he quotes a messianic psalm, Psalm 118, and he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And the Jewish leader's reaction to this parable, they immediately want to arrest him. 
Why? Because they want to kill him. They're actually immediately beginning to fulfill the parable Jesus just told. Who are they in the parable? They are the wicked tenant farmers. And here's the amazing thing in verse 12. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So what does this parable tell us? Why did the Jewish leaders want to kill Jesus? It's not because they don't believe he's the Messiah. It's because they believe he is God's son come to take his inheritance. That kind of threw me for a loop. They believe he is God's son and they want to kill him because they think that if they kill the son, they can take control of the vineyard. What did the vineyard represent? Israel, God's people. So here you have Jewish leaders over God's people liking their position of power, abusing their position of power for their own benefit, and they like it, and they don't want to lose that position. And so Jesus comes claiming to be the Messiah, in fact, doing all of these miraculous things that confirm he's God's son, and what do the Jewish religious leaders want to do with him? They want to kill the Messiah because they know he's the heir, but they believe wrongly, incredibly wrongly, foolishly wrongly, that if they kill the Messiah, they will actually get control over God's things. See how foolish that is? Because just because you kill the heir, who's still alive? The owner. The owner is still alive. And somehow they miss that. How did, how? How crazy, That's just their thinking must be darkened. Aha, Romans 1. If you exchange and reject God as God, your thinking will become darkened and you will begin to think right is wrong and wrong is right. This is exactly what's happening with the Jewish leaders. And Jesus is actually being patient by allowing these waves of opposition groups to come to him, and how does he respond to each one? He doesn't answer their question because he knows their motive. Instead, he answers their need, that they're sinful, that they're blind to their own brokenness, and that they desperately need to see their sin, repent of it, and turn to Jesus, God's Messiah, for redemption and salvation and restoration but they don't. They don't. They, in fact, go on. We know later that week and fulfill prophecy and accomplish God's purposes anyway. In their sin, they have Jesus, you know, you know the story. Arrested, goes through mock trials at night when trials are not supposed to happen. He is flogged, he is spit on, he is crucified, and he dies. Just like he said. And on the third day, just like he said, he rose from the dead. So here's what's interesting. There's one more conversation in this passage, and it's with one of these leaders. Because you might be asking, are they all just condemned to be damned? 
Are they all? Is it hopeless for these guys? No, it's not. We know that there are some within the Pharisees, some within the Sanhedrin who come to Christ, who turn to Jesus, who do repent. And in this text, Mark shares about a scribe who is hearing all of this, and he comes up to Jesus and he asks him the question, what is the greatest commandment? And to a scribe, back in that day, there were 613 commandments of God recorded. And one of the things the scribes were always kind of wrestling with, they were trying to systematize their theology. Does that sound familiar? And, and they, one of the big questions was, what's the main, what's the biggest commandment? And so this scribe, where is he going for his answer? He's going to the rabbi Jesus. He wants to know. And what we learn from the text is he sincerely is going to the teacher to ask this question. And Jesus answers, right? The classic answer. The most important is here, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no others beside him. And to love him with all your heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself. And then he says this, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. That was the kicker. That was the indicator that this scribe was beginning to understand. He was beginning to come to his senses. And I believe the Holy Spirit is leading him and moving him into possibly a saving relationship with Jesus. Mark leaves that out of this passage. Why would he do that? All Jesus says to him is, you are not far from the kingdom. Notice he doesn't say, you're in, you're saved. He says, you are not far from the kingdom. Why would Mark do that? Why would he leave that story there? I think in part because he wants us to ask that very question of ourselves. Where are you this morning? Are you far from the kingdom? Do you want God's stuff, but you don't want God? You reject his word as truth? Maybe you pick and choose. See, that's what some of the Jewish leaders were doing. They believed he was the Messiah, but somehow they didn't believe he was the eternal king of God's people. They thought they could usurp him by killing him. That he wouldn't come back from the dead? This guy who had authority over the dead and could raise them from the dead? And they certainly didn't know the scriptures because the scriptures are full of the fact that this Messiah would be eternal and would be on David's throne forever over God's people. They had rejected Jesus' identity. They'd rejected his authority and they'd rejected his power 
They didn't know his word. They knew of God, but they didn't truly know God. This scribe was being drawn towards Christ. And Mark leaves the detail about where he lands out. And I think that's partially intentional of the Holy Spirit so that we this morning, the applications to ask yourself, am I far from the kingdom? Am I in the kingdom, but living in my own false reality about certain aspects of God's authority? I'll give him this area of my life and this area and this area, but this one over here, this is mine. <laughs> we actually think that's going to work out well for us. God is love. He wants a relationship with us. One important thing about these two commandments is this. They go together, right? The scribe asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment, singular? And Jesus answers with a duo, with a pair. Why is that? Because you can't do the second commandment without first doing the first commandment. You can't love your neighbor. You can't love your brother. You can't love another person unless first you love the God of love, the one who is love, the one who has the capacity to put the spirit of love into your heart when you place your faith and trust in the Messiah, Jesus. Does that make sense? So my challenge for us this morning, my challenge is this. Will you ask God to show you whether or not there are areas of denial in your heart? Are you denying Jesus his rightful place over you? Are you denying him the power of his word? the power of his creative force to hold every atom in the cosmos together at this very moment? Will you submit to the reality that he is a sovereign Lord and that he's in control of this day, this moment? He's in control of your next heartbeat, your next brainwave. He's got you. Are you resting in that reality or are you railing against that reality? That's for you to decide. Pray with me. Father, you have no equal. You have no rival. Jesus, you're the name above all names, the King of kings. Holy Spirit, you are the indwelling spirit of truth placed there to expose my denials, to reveal to me my tendencies towards false reality, to show me my idols, to convict me of my brokenness and sin, and to lead me back into the arms of my faithful Savior and King, Jesus. 
Father, would you move in our church? Would you show us the way? Would you deepen our hearts? Would you strip out any of these three core denials that may reside there from time to time? And Father, if there's someone in this room who's near to the kingdom, would you draw them in? Be pleased to use even us as the background for that wonderful dance. Draw us closer to your heart and transform our hearts. Allow us to love the way you love. We commit this to you. In Jesus' name, amen.